Hello, this is Brian Skersha, and we are doing Video Game Book Club for May 2018. We are today doing Tacoma. Ooh, this is Josh Galecki over here. And we have special guest star, Clint. Hey, guys. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Clint. Uh, so first things first, just want to set the stage here a little bit. Uh, Tacoma, sort of a general exploration uh actually walking simulator game for those in the um, know with that uh, genre but it is uh, developed by Fulbright who actually is sort of a pioneer of this walking simulator genre with their uh, uh, breakout hit Gone Home uh, back in I believe 2013. Uh, Tacoma quite a bit of a jump from this that particular game uh, but I, I think it did expand on sort of their initial walking simulator formula and I'm a big fan of this uh, developer. I'd agree with that. I liked this game uh, quite a bit more than I liked Gone Home, even though I thought Gone Home was a very interesting experiment. We can get into the particular comparisons later on, but this game was a clear step forward to me. I'd say the same. Yeah, for, for what it's worth, I think this this is one of those games that actually made me want to revisit areas uh, to make sure I hadn't missed anything. So I think it's safe to say I, I enjoyed this. Um, you know, I'm a fan of Gone Home and Fulbright in general, specifically, um, you know, Steve Gaynor, who uh, is the sort of pioneer of that studio. Um, I actually followed a podcast he was on for a while just because he's a very interesting thinker about games and development and stuff like that. Um, but this game is quite a bit different, you know, from a plot perspective than what he uh, uh, initially uh, set out to do with Gone Home, although at the same time, I think the main thing we're getting out of this particular thing is it's a step forward in how to tell stories with video games, in my opinion. I'd, I'd agree with that, for sure. Um, it was, you know, after the success of Gone Home, um, it was a kind of a breakout hit for them back when, when was that? When did that come out? 2007? I thought it was 2013. 2013? I don't know. Yeah. Time compresses as you get older. <laughs> There's no difference between them in my mind anymore. Um but yeah, they 2013 it came out. It was a uh, um, for back when this term walking simulator was first being thrown around, and now it's its own out and out genre of games, as it turns out. Um, but yeah, it's the plot for this game is that you are a contractor in this futuristic corporation world, and you're assigned to go to the space station and retrieve this AI from there, the AI hardware. And along the way, you kind of learn the story of the crew that was on the Tacoma spaceship up until a few days before you came. You find out what happened, and you get to know them, the characters, fairly well uh, beyond that, too. Yeah, so I mean, the player character that you uh, take on, Amy, uh, you the, the main uh, crux of this is you get an AR device that sort of allows you to, you know, take a look at actions, review conversations of all the non-player characters that you uh, encounter after the fact. Uh, I think the the main thing that we're talking about here, and Josh hit on a little bit, is that you're um, sort of coming to the scene of um, the events of this game. I believe 48 hours after they all happened, uh, and you're sort of accessing data from this uh, AR um, data uh, sort of cache that the AI that Josh referenced is, uh, or that had the AI had sort of uh, pulled together. Yeah, I actually thought this was kind of interesting. It was a choice they made in Gone Home as well, but you're never dealing with actual events. You're always in the aftermath in your own little vacuum and then you just kind of experience things from what's left behind 
Yeah, and I think uh, this is a this is a really expedient design choice in my opinion. Um, they, uh, you know, obviously this is not a, a large studio. I think this was made by a total of like a dozen people or less throughout the course of its development. So they're not going to be able to spend time, um, you know, scripting detailed interactive cutscenes with fully modeled characters. So they take a really creative, um, a, a, a really creative uh, end run around that by making you one not an actual participant in these stories events and two utilizing this ar conceit to basically um, abstract away uh, complex character models and basically just use wireframes which not only has a really interesting aesthetic but um, makes it a hell of a lot easier to animate i'd imagine <laughs> for sure don't have to worry about any facial expressions or making sure the eyes don't blink in too creepy of a fashion <laughs> Mm-hmm. It very carefully sidesteps the uncanny valley, which is a wonderful thing. So I think um, another... <laughs> I, I agree. It's, it's sort of interesting how some of those things like the facial animations, um, you know, people drinking, people trying to eat food in video games, are some of the most cringeworthy aspects of, like, trying to have a, a sort of realistic video game uh, expression in a in a character, but... Uh, like I said, don't have to worry about that when your characters are all wireframes. I think you're kind of, uh, to get on a little bit of a tangent there, like there's that kind of cutting edge of realism that's always present in games. It tends not to age well. Like if you compare, um, if you compare like, I don't know, Wind Waker to something that's roughly contemporaneous with it, one of the first person shooters from back then, Wind Waker everybody's going to say that looks like a better game today as opposed to when they're trying to your most realistic thing ends up being less realistic 10 years later yeah my favorite designers seem to often go down this path like um another game that i think does uh, that really well is um firewatch uh, by campo santo like i i am confident that game is going to look fantastic in you know 20 years from now it's just got such a like distinctive art to it. It's very Team um, Fortress, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, even something like Team Fortress, which has that really, um, you know, that sort of cartoony look, but it's very stylized, you know, your 1960s spy villain thing. I think the stronger the direction and the less technical, the more likely you are to have something that ages a little more gracefully. Well, from an artistic angle, too, when you're when realism is your top priority, that constrains the directions you can take things and the amount of stylization you can put into it from an art perspective as well when mm -hmm. you care about it a little less when you can expand your limits a little more then you have more freedom to work with yeah i agree so one thing i'll add to that while they did kind of phase out a little bit on on the visual side of things i thought the audio was like really spot on the voice acting was amazing and i even took some screenshots um, through the game, because I was just really impressed. Like, if if in in the main room where they have a pool table, if you look at the wall behind it, there's like scuff marks on the short wall only where somebody would have hit it with a pool stick, you know, while they're backing up to it. It's just like little tiny things <laughs> that, that instead of all taking all this time on the video, that they still had little visual cues here and there that that made it all seem more realistic. Made it seem like a lived-in space as opposed yeah. to just a. This is what an artist rendition of a kitchen would look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, I think that is one of the main things that I think really elevates the the plot of this game is how 
how much attention to detail is put into the world that they're that the characters are all living in um you know we talked about uh a little bit about the the plot of you know the character you're you are and what your mission is but the the main thing i think that sort of pulls me forward in this world is not necessarily the beat by beat plot but just the world that you're exploring and finding out about you know you're in 2088 there's huge corporations taking over everything in society uh civilians are pretty much indentured servants to all these things and the craziest and most interesting part to me is they actually incorporated a good deal of uh real world companies and somehow did not get yeah. sued for libel <laughs> yeah. i think they had like an amazon university in there and a couple others yeah, yeah. I saw Hilton, Carnival, Amazon, um, the titular um, corporation that you are working for, or rather are investigating uh, of Tacoma. The owners of Tacoma is the Venturis Corporation. Or Venturis, yeah, Venturis, I believe is what it is. I guess from that um, angle, too, you notice that none of the other corporations are really framed as being bad corporations. It's only the fictional one the the one that you work for that's the bad guy in this case that's true uh in a weird plot twist at the end like your characters end up being rescued by sailors from the carnival spaceship that's going <laughs> by <laughs> you know i an interesting thing i thought about this game is you're you're a hospitality worker in it like you're basically um you know the guys working the underbelly of a cruise ship for lack of a better you know mm -hmm. uh, simile yeah, so while, while I was looking through some of these things, uh, and it was mainly told through, like, journals and, and things like that, like everything else was, not all the corporations seemed bad, but all these people seemed extremely hopeless because you got the one guy who made a mistake and he left his company that, that he was owing money to because of his college and then he couldn't get back in. It's like he couldn't get a job and it's like if you sever that tie between you and the company that essentially owns you, you've basically ruined your, your whole future. The the yeah. whole the whole system's rigged against you pretty much. It's yeah, it's it almost like slavery. Yeah. yeah. So I I agree to a point and the bleakness. Um I think you're talking about Andrew, the botanist, right? Where he's trying to send his son to college, but No it was it was Clive the Clive, uh, yeah yeah he he, oh, he regretted okay. leaving his company uh, that had paid for his school and and, and you, I think it's even things you find in his trash he's like sent applications to please allow him to come back and they won't take him back like sorry you left that's it nothing mm -hmm. for you and then nobody else that is sucks. taking him on either because you lose um, you lose your corporate loyalty yeah yeah. yeah. Although, although you're right, he, the other guy is trying to pay for his college. He's like cashing in corporate loyalty, and they even get into the whole thing of how it's worth more than stocks and all this other stuff. It's crazy. Yeah, it it really is. Like, it's it's completely crazy that like the the sort of extent to which they've blown out all these uh, uh, corporations and their loyalty programs and things like that. I mean, each one of these people, like you said, I guess is being taken advantage of in, in one way or another. And it's basically like the effect that these corporations are having on them and their relationships with their family or loved ones. Oh, yeah. it's uh, They're kind of trapped in a crooked, crooked system, being this kind of underclass of things. I mean, um, I think outside of EV, everybody's in one way or another trapped or financially trapped to working with this corporation on these ships here and there. Well, but then EV is even being affected by this because uh, EV St. James, the station coordinator, um, 
is in a relationship with Clive that she does not want to disclose to the corporation for lack of, you know, for possible cause of losing her job. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, every one of these people is had by the short ones by this corporation. <laughs> I think she was being held kind of emotionally hostage too. I don't know if you guys caught this in, in, in your playthrough or not, but her sister had died as a result of an accident with this company as well, and I think that's why she's there trying to figure out what's going on. Oh, it was because yeah. of the company? Huh, yeah. I didn't notice that. It, it, it was in – her sister had died a couple years earlier in the actual Tacoma, Washington uh, facility. Oh, that's right. I do remember that. Which I expected that to loop around, but I never, I never did find much about it after that. Oh man, I totally missed that one. Um, I guess that's one complaint. I, I, or sorry, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, I think I. Well, you might have that as a complaint, but I think that might be a strength of how they're going on with this. Is that they don't they leave the loose threads out there. They don't tell you everything. They you see these glimpses of the characters as they were, and that's either through rummaging their through their personal effects or re- seeing the recordings of them from a few days ago. And you're never able to, as the player or as the player character, interact with these people and ask them questions, find out the answers to what you want to know, how, to these loose threads they leave. It's all second-hand storytelling. Yeah, you're you're right, and I was going to complain about that, but you know, <laughs> if I complained about that, I'd be a complete hypocrite because uh, I believe I've complained about other games in the past that over-explain things. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess I you know you can't have it any either way with me. Um, it's good that they want leave you wanting more. That's how you know you've done a good job telling enough story. Life never ties up that neatly anyway. So why should this story? Yeah, that's a good point. And this game it definitely left me like wanting to see where this story actually ended for these characters. It feels like the story may have ended for the investigator that you're playing, but this very much feels like it just started for the crew of the Tacoma at the point at which you leave them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like they're basically being swept into a you know a vast corporate conspiracy and you know joining a revolution for lack of a better. Um, analogy hmm. yeah the, you know, it is i think all the characters end up a little surprised at where they were but even the ones that believe in the corporation like uh andrew the botanist uh at the end of the game they very clearly realize the reality of the situation they're in and it's interesting how they kind of um you do see character growth even in this compressed time frame of the time we have available with each of the characters, they managed to fit some good, some I don't know, some good, some decent character arcs in there. I thought that was one of the impressive, uh, kind of an economy of storytelling sort of thing. I actually want to hear a little more about that, like about wh- where you think uh, a few folks grew as as characters. I I noticed a couple, like like you said, Andrew, I think is an obvious one, but um, someone like nat or or bert or even clive like i don't feel like i saw a ton of growth in in their arcs i think there was an interesting backstory to each of them but i don't feel like i saw them grow as characters a ton during the course of the game i think one of the things the game did kind of well was to use the past as a kind of subtext 
towards what the future is going to be. Like the thing I'm thinking about here is with Bert when you find her office. Like this is um this is after you go to uh, or about the same time as you go to Nat's room, which is just being used as storage right now, and you find that this Cluey dog person that she's been interacting with before is part mm -hmm. of this AI liberation front, and you find that literature in her room, and you're like, oh, this is going on, and then you go to Bert's room, and she's like this, um, you know, she's a sports sportswoman, she goes hunting, she's got an old half-burned American flag hanging up on the wall and you get the feeling that she is all for this revolution thing that's possibly about to happen. So it's a way to like show that, okay, this is kind of show you where the characters are likely to be going in the near future, even without explicitly telling you. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, I do. And to me, I, I think that's even more just about the world telling the story more so than um, than the characters. I guess the characters are, are used as like this really artful coat hanger for the, the team to hang all of this wonderful world lore on. Like, I guess a good example, one of these guys, uh, I can't remember which one, maybe it was Andrew, but uh, the botanist, is, he, his family was refugees from uh, like a 2052 Tibetan genocide, which... Like, wow, what a crazy thing to just drop in there. Like, apparently there was a genocide in T Tibet 30 years back, and this guy's family came out of that. And Man, it's just like, it was like I want to play the game that's set there. Yeah. So, speaking of growth, I don't, I kind of agree with you, Brian. I, I don't know if I saw too much growth, but we definitely saw a change. I think we got, there's a moment in the game where they were all dealing with their mortality so one by one, they knew that they were going to have to leave and, and go into cryosleep. And there's, of course, a strong chance that, that they don't wake up from that mm. in the way it's presented in this world. And so one by one, you could follow them as they went off to almost like deal with the final moments of their life before they voluntarily went and and did this thing. And I thought that was when the characters were, were their most interesting and they... I don't know if I would say grown, but you definitely got to see a more clear picture of, of who they were and, and, and how they felt. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I guess <laughs> this is why people grow so close when they endure a crisis together, right? Like you get a very crystallized picture of what's important to someone and what uh, their sort of end game in, in life is. And it's only naturally that you see, you know, both of the couples sort of pair off. Uh, Andrew tries to find a way to get a message out to his family. Um, and uh, what's her name? Sarah. I guess <laughs> her her sort of driving goal seems to be to, you know, basically like understand AIs. And I think that's why you end up sort of following her as the, to my mind, the primary protagonist of the end of the the plot initially. I don't know if you guys feel the same way. Yeah, she was definitely a less interesting character, but her whole point was to move you along closer to Odin, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And the, I think there's a fascinating thing about sort of Odin and what you discover about the nature of him, you know, being that um, Nat had been basically trying to up his creativity and problem-solving abilities while simultaneously sort of making him less controllable, uh, which at, at the end of this game it led to a really interesting thing, you know, 
there's a computer programming term, garbage in, garbage out. But uh, I guess that works both ways because, you know, she had basically trained this AI to be more human, to my mind. And that's why, at the end of the day, Odin ended up betraying his, uh, you know, uh, corporate overlords and allowing Sarah to get that last minute message out. Right. I also found it interesting. Uh, and again, you, you, I think you can miss this, but there was a whole section too, where you can see all the different, uh, AIs. And again, they don't really talk about it too much, but you, you understand that there are stories out there of these other AIs and you can see their like personality charts. And there was one that there's a backstory. I think it was a uh, Heka that was a medical AI and it had lost a patient and you watched its character growth and it, despite the fact that it's an AI, it got like horribly depressed and it like wasn't responding to things anymore. And you, it was just interesting just to see that f- fake or not, these entities have a personality. I actually missed that. The Caprice scores, I think is what you're talking about where they yes rate the AI. And there was an email where they showed like all the other ones as well, I believe. Hmm, that's awesome. I wish I would have seen that. Um, Cause that's sort of Sarah's main subplot. You know, the medical uh, person. She was the person, or one, a person that lost a um, patient because of a poor decision made by an AI, and that's why her her sort of mission in this was to, you know, to my mind, it was to sort of understand AIs and sort of figure out what was what happened there. You know, make it right rather than take the blame for it, which is what she gets. If you look at her emails and communications, corporations basically like, you're way too talented for this job we have you in, but we're not going to give you a better one until you take responsibility for the death you caused. And she will not do that because she knows she didn't cause it. So, playing off of that, what did you think of the whole obsolescence day thing? <laughs> yeah, we didn't. We totally skipped this over, but obsolescence day was such a cool conceit to start this up. Um, basically, you know, this is the day you're told whether your contract is renewed or not, and it also basically is a celebration of the fact that humans can stay on uh, instead of just having AI run the whole show. Um, I think Obsolescence Day to me represents like this is um, a this is a representation uh, in the game world of the power of like a union, basically, because basically that's what it was. It was the celebration of a union victory to allow humans to retain jobs on these things rather than just you know, having corporations allow pure AI to do it instead, putting tons of people out of a job. Yeah, I was a little scared of it at first because they, they show you obsolescence day, but they don't tell you what it's really about until about ter- two thirds of the way through the game. And I was like, oh God, is this like the fact that we are obsolete? <laughs> because essentially <laughs> these people are. And, the, and I think that's why they're pushing Sarah to, uh, to accept the blame because they don't, corporations don't want AIs to have any blame because eventually they do very much want these human workers to become obsolete and, and not have to be a part of this anymore. Yep. I think that's that's basically where I ended up with the, the point of obsolescence day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess let's maybe talk a little bit about, um, I think we talked a bit about the mechanics when we went through all of our you know fascination with their use of wireframes and things like that, but how'd you guys feel about the fact that um, they... <laughs> You know, they didn't just have your standard issue builds in this game. You had heavy set people, thin people, tall people, short people. Um, I think it was pretty cool that they had basically every body type represented on there. He wasn't just your standard issue, standard build people. 
think that goes deeper to personality and, and walks of life too. Actually, this is one of the notes I had in here, but there's in both of their games, I actually played uh, Gone Home and Tacoma back to back because it was one of those that had been sitting around for a while. And in both of them, it's always very, it has a very diverse cast and it's not your standard. Hmm. It's, it's not your standard characters for sure. Yeah, I, I I think that's a strength, and to be perfectly honest, to me it made it easier to parse which character was which. Like the fact that, um, like I'm not going to mistake um, Andrew and Clyde, despite the fact that they're both sort of of, you know, Eastern-ish descent. Um, you know, one had a very different color and body type than the other. Like, good job. That was a a smart move, but it also gave representation to people that are generally underrepresented in games. So, win-win. Yeah, the color coding was perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I uh, also really enjoyed the design of this space station, how you could basically see chunks of it from almost everywhere. A lot of windows in very perfect places to allow you to see like the rotation of the, uh, um, you know, this, uh, the different areas of the thing around the sun and things like that. I like that, and then also from the main room, I think that was the only room that you could see Earth from. So, like, as you're coming in, and then right before you leave the last time, that's the only time you can actually see Earth. It's kind of like a final goodbye and a... Hmm. Yeah, you're right. Now that I think about it, the the whole place sort of faces the moon, and then the uh, rear entrance faces the uh, the Earth. Huh, that's interesting. I wonder if there's uh, a meaning behind that, or if it's just sort of a a note. I wanted to go back to plot for just a minute. I thought one of the interesting things was the comparison between Nat and uh, Sarah and their interactions with the AI. Sarah treated her, or it's treated Odin much more as kind of like a person, a confidant um, to interact with compared to the rest of the spaceship people. And even though Nat was the AI communications expert, the one who was supposed to be there to condition the AI and get it to go through its paces, improve its numbers and its scores, um, it's almost like Sarah is almost more of the audience stand-in, and Nat's kind of like the mathematician looking at formulas with the AI over there. Then mechanically, too, I think the most interesting thing about, thing about the game was likely the AR uh, method of interacting or watching the conversations go back and forth. Um, you could rewind and walk about the scene as you will. You could follow one character and as they're on the way to meet another character and um, kind of see how the characters are interacting with each other in kind of a more natural way than standard video game dialogue or omnipresent narrative usually allows for. Yeah, I just want to add to that. I think the uh, the ability to sort of scrub back through a, a given conversation that they bring up is uh, another one of my favorite aspects, too. Um, like you said, being able to follow different characters is one thing, but if you could only see it one time through, uh, that would kind of suck. You'd have to play this game so many times to get the full story, but sort of allowing you to go back and forth, scrub through it uh, in a way that reminded me a little bit of her story, and I'm not sure if you guys have played that, but yeah. um, I really enjoyed the idea of sort of being able to understand conversations that were happening simultaneously, and then the fact that Odin sort of interacts with everyone almost at once, uh, definitely sort of highlights the fact that he is, you know, a different type of entity as well. 
I think it also made it feel like it was a more lived-in world as well. Like there'd be two conversations going on at the same time, as happens in the real world. But normally, it's impossible to get the experience of both of those fully. That's true. Video games are all are often so like uh, contrived to be at the whim of the player, right? Like things only happen when the player is present, and in this game, very specifically, everything happened when the player was not. Um, so that was a cool subversion in my mind. There's one other mechanic that I really, really liked. They had them in both games, and this might seem kind of dumb, but I'm a little OCD. So with items in a game that, that you pick up, they have a put-back option, so you set it down properly. Nothing takes me out of the experience more than I'll pick up a cup, I look at the cup, and now the only way to get rid of it is to toss it full force across the room and have it <laughs> bounce off dead walls. Like, this is not how I would live. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Whenever you pick it, I think Skyrim's the worst at that. Like, yes. you pick up one piece of fruit and everything on the table shifts due to havoc physics, and then all of a sudden you try and put it back down, and it goes careening into some king's face, and he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> That's funny. That's a good point. <laughs> it allows you to interact differently as well. Like, um, if you're, you know, when you, you look at the picture of Evie's dead sister, you can put that back as it was undisturbed, as opposed to just trashing through the room and throwing things everywhere. It's true. It does provide a little bit more formality. It's like when a game makes you want to walk into a scene rather than run full speed just because that's fearless like the character would, would actually do. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only person that does that. I'll I'll purposely slow down sometimes. Absolutely. No, I've done that many a time. I, I think that and the ability to see your hands and feet are like some of the best things that's happened in a video game. And this game used it in some parts and not in others, but I think it just makes you feel like you, you're actually sitting in the space. You're interacting with things like you normally would, and you can see your body like you normally would, and I think it gives it a up-close and, and personal feeling to the whole experience. Yeah, and that, that that in itself is you know sort of the encapsulation of the, the AR approach that Josh mentioned right at the top. Like, what a smart thing. And boy, why isn't this game in... VR yet. What a perfect thing for VR this would be if they found a good way to accomplish movement. Hmm. Well, there you go. If they found a good way to accomplish movement. Yeah, I mean, Clint, you're the only one of us that has experience in VR. Do you think this would translate if they found a good way to to hack the movement apart, or what do you think? Very easily. I think the... So right now they use blink movement for almost everything. You basically point your controller at something and you kind of like teleport forward. And I think that kind of movement style would really take away from the the personal aspect of this game because it's all one shot. It's all the way through. They very rarely, if the only time they ever like take control of your body for you is when you get on a lift. You see your hands move forward and you step down and, 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 and that's it. Other than that, you're never away from your character Mm-hmm. Which, again, makes it very deep and personal. I think the blinking around would take some of that away, but being able to use your actual hands to interact with the pieces in the environment, that might make up for it. Hmm. It's hard to move naturally in VR. It It's, it's uh, nauseating. How do they accomplish it in something like a Skyrim VR? I don't know that they did it well. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't played this, so I just wondered if you knew. Um Anyway, we're taking that a bit far afield. Um, 
know, I guess to get us back on track, um, we can talk a little about sort of some of the, the overarching things and in this game from a thematic standpoint. And I think the main one from my, uh, <laughs> from my standpoint is corporatism, you know, basically the strain between workers and their job. Um, yeah. Yeah. Labor versus capital, so to speak. And I thought it was interested on a sci-fi twist, not just to be labor between like the unionized workers of orbital belt five, two, seven, but also the, AIs included as exploited laborers as well in the game's hmm. thematic conception. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess I didn't think of the AI as an exploited labor, uh, or laborer, excuse me. Um, but the one thing I did have from an AI standpoint is sort of a, an overarching theme is uh, artificial intelligence versus human intelligence and the subversion of the rogue AI trope. Um, obviously, when you first enter this game, Odin is painted by Clive as this sort of all-seeing ship AI that you're just like, oh, I've seen this story before. They're definitely going to have problems <laughs> with this AI. And it turns out the AI was their greatest ally. Mm-hmm. I was about to say, I think that that all started with uh, the Alien movie in, 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 19, in the 1970s. And it's been pretty prevalent ever since. Every time there's an AI, they're the ones trying to kill you. They're the ones after you. And they're the ones kind of taking over the whole situation. Yeah, what was that movie? Uh, the Space uh, 2001, The Space Odyssey? Yeah, we talked about this with uh, Soma, I think, right? Oh, I was thinking Alien, like the original Alien, when, when Ash is the one that's secretly trying to let the alien onto the ship. Oh, hmm, maybe I missed that one. Hmm. But anyway, I think we can all agree that there has been a long history of rogue AIs, and uh, one more in the non-rogue AI column is always good to balance the scales. Yeah. Well, the game kind of had it did have a maybe didn't doesn't get qualified as a rogue AI, but the entire events of the game happened because the corporation AI Juno ran some simulations that said, "Hey, here's the best way you can make some money." Yeah, seriously, fuck Juno. I think I think we can all agree Juno is the big bad of this game. Jesus Christ, what a terrifying thing Juno is. Um, to just add a little more detail there. Juno basically came up with this plan that caused the communications and air supply knockout of Tacoma as a way to manufacture a a crisis situation in which humans, the crew that you're observing, get killed so that they can basically repeal the Worker Solidarity Act or whatever that Josh mentioned uh, to allow full AI on these ships. It is truly frightening stuff like that that's something that just came out of a computer and then humans were like, yep, seems like a, <laughs> seems good idea to me. <laughs> and yet, you know, shit like that's actually happening in the world, which is equally depressing. I'd read, uh, like my kind of reading was that it wasn't that the rogue AI was the problem so much as a corporation was yeah. the problem. And the AI was just like the embodiment of the corporation. Well, this goes back to what I was saying earlier, garbage in, garbage out. This know, <laughs> AI is hanging around these corporate overlords for so long that he's sort of inculcated all of their motives, drives, and means to ends. It's like when your and, kid starts hanging out with a bad crowd, those CEOs. Or when you're a shitty parent. <laughs> yeah, so I actually had a note here that kind of fell in line right with that, and it's uh, fallen in line with the fact that AI is neither good nor bad, really. It's the fact that it's our creation and and we we are flawed uh, 
therefore our mm. creation is also going to be flawed. And, and, and the, the AI that we let go off do its own thing had the capability for good, but the one that was being Juno, the one that was still being controlled by the corporation, it was just doing what it was told. We're, we're the bad guys, not them. They're just, yeah. they're just our kids. <laughs> I, I retract my point earlier. You both have made me see in the light that truly we are the we are the the monsters. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Um, you know, I guess uh, just to keep us moving through uh, themes and other things, I, I noticed. Um, I guess what you know, unions keep making an appearance in here with the obsolescence day and the, you know struggle of the these all of these folks being laborers uh do you guys think this game actually has a commentary on, on unions or is it just sort of like you know the human i don't know i i'm, I'm struggling to think if this game actually has a, a point of view on unions or not i think it kind of views them as a defense against some of the worst excesses of corporation ism if i can add an ism onto that <laughs> Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, and here in 2018, like, unions are obviously falling further and further out of favor, and it's just, you know, uh, it's probably something like that that leads to a world like uh, the one in Tacoma, which is kind of depressing. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Clint, did you have something? I Sorry, I think I cut you off. No, I was just going to say, I don't think it was so much unions as it was just... And, and, and I feel like this struck a nerve even with people today. So with all the automation going on, and we a lot of us here work in fields related to that, and, and it seems like a worthy goal and something you want to move towards. But at the same time, you got to think about, okay, where does this leave my role or where is this leaving other people? And it's a very real fear, and I think they were really playing into that. It wasn't so much about the union, but what they were fighting against, which was the fact that humans just felt like they didn't have a place anymore, really. Yeah, it it does, you know, and this does threaten to take us down like a a very large labor versus capital discussion, which we don't have time for. But yeah, it's it's definitely it's saying something about it, but I'm not sure what. And I think they sort of they cut off the story and the characters just before you understand where exactly everyone in the story would fall. I think the point is to make you think, not so much to tell you what to think. That is a good point thematically one of the interesting things about this game is it definitely set itself up towards the beginning as being a humans versus ai thing when you go onto the ship oh there was an accident oh there's an ai i wonder what happened but then as you get through the game more it transforms to be less of a struggle of humans versus ai as to be humans versus corporations which if it was gonna if i was gonna take out a larger point from the game, I would say the game is saying that unfettered corporations are a larger danger to humanity than unfettered AI is. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think that's fair. You know, unrestrained capitalism basically is what we're, we're getting at, but huh. And, you know, the, the larger powers that unfettered capitalism can harness onto its side, the more dangerous it becomes, AI being chief among those powers. Mm-hmm. What did you guys think about the ending? So I think I've said this a few times throughout the, the course of our discussion, but I feel like this game ended right when the real uh, hardships were just about to begin for these characters. Like, they overcame a crisis, but now they're entering into a world of shit. 
I thought the ending was good. Uh, the twist at the end where you find out that you've secretly been working for the AI Liberation Front all along. Uh, Well-played storyline. I didn't think it was like uh, the most unexpected twist. They definitely hinted towards it before. Did it in a good way, for sure. It was a satisfying ending to it. Um, but I would say well-crafted is my adjective of choice for it. Gotcha. That was my least favorite part, actually. So as, as as close as they keep you to that character, I know they don't reveal much of your backstory because you're more focused on everybody else, but I felt like that was almost like a slap in the face at the end. Like, they kept you very close and personal to this character, and then yet the character that you've been and that, that you've been experiencing the whole time had a secret motive that you don't know. Hmm. That's interesting. You're going through all of the motions thinking you're doing one thing, but you're actually doing another. Right. Um and you don't even actually make that choice. <laughs> like, the choice was made for you. Hmm. I, I agree with Josh that I like the tw- twist, but I also agree with you, Clint, that maybe that should have been a choice at the end of the day. I mean, I don't know anyone in their right mind that wouldn't have made the choice that the game made for you, but, you know, put it there. <laughs> still giving you the choice is a power and makes the game, makes the choice mean something, even if it's like one you don't even think about and 95% of all people go with option A instead of option B. Um, It's more meaningful because it was a choice as opposed to the automatic option. Do you think it would be? Like, this is specifically a game that has not given you a single dialogue option in the entire thing. Uh, So at the very end to say, set course for Venturis Corporation or Jupiter Belt or whatever whatever the other one was, Titan, I can't remember. would that have been an effective moment? I think it's more effective to have been done the way it was. I just didn't like that it was, the game is all about collecting information and there was a very key piece of information that you already had, your character did, and that didn't even reveal it to you, the player. Yeah, but how many games do you wake up with amnesia? I mean, this isn't new. Right. I think part of it is what Clint's getting at is that for the first 95% of the game or whatever, till you get up to that last point, and maybe just a little bit at the beginning too, your character isn't really a character. It's just what you do as the player. There's no characterization really. Your character is talked at through your tablet computer or through the AR recordings or what have you, but uh, they don't really have any personality whatsoever. And then when you get to the end and you find out they've had the secret motivation this whole time, it's like, oh, by the way, there is a personality and backstory here. And I can see what Clint's saying, that it feels tacked on a little bit. Yeah, I, I agree. I just, I I liked the twist so much that I'm I'm not ready to say this wasn't the way it should have been handled. I'm good with it. Good with it either way. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I think, yeah, I guess we'll just leave it at that, you know, play it, see if you like it for yourself. (laughs) It certainly didn't ruin it for me, it's just something I thought I'd bring up. No, it's a good point, too. Um, Yeah, but Josh, as you were saying, I think it's time for a three-word review. Three, and also a thumbs up or thumbs down for the game. Oh, yeah, this is a definite thumbs up for me. I'll start us off if you you, uh, don't mind. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm a big thumbs up with this game. I you know, I I've chosen several games of this ilk to to play for video game book club before because I think they they make you think about things other than just games. And uh, I 
totally dug this, just like I totally dug Gone Home, just like I totally dug something that I feel is in a similar vein, you know, Firewatch and things like that. Um, but my three-word review for this game, <laughs> I have I have three options listed here, and I'm not sure which to go with. Um, uh, actually, I'll, I'll only say two of them, because I think one's better than the other. But Audio Logs the Video Game uh, is one of them. <laughs> um, Four words. Oh. <laughs> audio Logs, comma, the video game. Video game, <laughs> one word. <laughs> and the other is a corporate capitalist dystopia. Oh my god, I, you just almost nailed mine there. So I might actually just go with that second one. Alright, uh, for me this game was a thumbs up. Uh, really thought the their mechanic of that AR thing was very well done, very interesting. There was a kind of avant-garde play, I don't know if you guys heard about it, called Sleep No More that they've mentioned was an inspiration for this game. In that game, it's a retelling of the story Hamlet, except instead of being on a seat and watching the action unfold in front of you, the action takes place over five stories of this uh, so-called hotel, and you get to wander around and see the action happen. You kind of choose where to go and uh, kind of a good metaphor for what the video game's like, too. So my three-word review for this will be high-tech VCR. Hmm. That's, That's good. good and yes, I have heard of Sleep No More, and it sounds fascinating. I wish something like that would happen in Columbus, but I believe it's only in New York. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it was, a, it, was, it was a thumbs up, too. I really enjoyed the immersive world and the story it had to tell and the way it told it. And like we talked about before, I like the way that it made you think without really pushing too many of its own ideas onto you. And Brian, you almost got my three-word review. I have dystopian corporate hellscape as mine. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) All right, good. Well, I think that, that, that'll that wrap us up for the old uh, Tacoma. Uh, next month, we're doing West of Loathing by Asymmetric Games. Uh, fun stick figure western with a comedy twist and a Mario RPG battle system. So enjoy that, bad boy, and we'll talk to you next month in Video Game Book Club. This is Brian Skersha. Josh Galecki. Clint Jones. Signing off. See ya.